Welcome to the Rebel Educator Podcast, where we talk to students, educators, and thought leaders who are innovators and creatives in education. I'm your host, Tanya Sheckley. Thanks for joining us. Welcome, everyone. I'm here today with Komal Shah. She's an experienced educator, now turned educational consultant. Komal's on a mission to bring schools, teachers, and parents within education more conscious and connected practices for young children. She believes it will lead to a more harmonious world. She has experience in education through five years of teaching middle school with Teach for America, combined with a business lens through an MBA from USC. Welcome. Thanks. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm glad to finally have this conversation. I know. We were just talking about being on LinkedIn and now we get to meet in person. So even better. Yes. So you you were a successful teacher and you clearly have a love for education. What made you want to step away from teaching and get your MBA? An interesting question because don't most people do this? No, I'm kidding. (laughs) You know, it's an interesting story. So I started out in traditional public for two years. So I did Teach for America at my placement school and I served the same community and moved to a charter school. I did that for three more years. And it was the same kids who were, you know, experiencing a lot in their communities. There was a lot of like gang violence, a lot of poverty and a lot of things that were obviously affecting my students. And in the first school, you know, they just weren't being served in any capacity. It was quite under-resourced. There weren't enough teachers, so on and so forth. The list goes on. So when I went to the charter school that was very resourced and was in their eyes doing good for kids because, of course, there's the achievement gap and you're trying to close it and trying to get kids to and through college. It was interesting because I remember by my fifth year of teaching, I was sitting down with my dean, actually, and he looks at me and he goes, you know where the school like is doing so well. And I was like, no, why? And he's like, well, it runs like a business. And I I don't know, something about that hit me. And I didn't really know the impact of his hurt words had on me. But, you know, being in a charter school, it is very much like a business in terms of there's a board of directors and there's a CEO and there's a marketing department and all of these different facets of an organization that you see in the corporate world. And so at the time, I was actually thinking or imagining about starting my own school. So I'm like, well, what's going to differentiate me? Yes, I have five years of teaching background, but what, uh, what is next? Do I want an administration credential? What would be the next thing? And honestly, I woke up one morning in fifth year of teaching and had a dream that I should go to business school and ordered GMAT books off of my dad's Amazon account. Only for him to call me and go, what are you doing? And he's like, you're a teacher. Why did you just order GMAT books? I was like, I think I'm going to go to business school. And uh, that's kind of how the decision was made. So you, you decided to go to business school. So I went the other direction. I was in business for 10 years. I was in sales and marketing. I sold beer. I traveled all over the country. It was a blast. But I knew, much like you, I knew that there was something more and something different that I needed to be doing. Um, And so I moved into education later after my kids were born. So I'd love to hear some of your thoughts on how you see that intertwining of business and education, not from like school is a business standpoint, but more of a philosophical. I know I've heard you talk before about, you know, how schools sometimes look at their students as customers or consumers rather than as humans. And so I'd love to dig more deeply into that intertwining of business and education. Yeah. You know, I will say there's 
a lot more than we think there it is. But the first thing that really hit me when I went to business school was this idea of how your customer client is so important, right? You have to test the products on them. You have to see if they like it. You have to listen to their feedback. You have to see what's working and what's not and iterate over and over again. And we see this over and over in the business world. And that for me was really hard because I was going, well, do we do that with our students at school? Do we ever ask them like, does this curriculum resonate with you? Does this feel good? Are you learning? Is this actually relevant? Would you buy this product again? You know, would you come into this classroom again? And so that for me was heartbreaking, but also the biggest correlation that I had was our students are our customers and our consumers. And yet we never really ask them what they want. And of course we can argue that it's because they're children and, you know, we, we know more than they do, but I mean, there are so many businesses out there that are serving kids that are asking the kids what they want or asking the parents what they want. And we just completely negate that. And it ends up being, well, we've done this for the past 50 years. So, you know, I'm sure it will work and we'll just keep doing it until the end of the world. So that for me was one of the biggest things that I saw. I mean, beyond that, I thought a lot about just what it takes to run a well-oiled machine. You know, I think in the business world, Yes, there is this idea of the bottom line and all of that. But then there's also this part of just your employees and the people and culture and team building and relationship building. And over and over again, you see in schools where the teachers are burnt out or the culture is maybe not the best. And you have to ask yourself, well, that's all we talk about in the business space. So why are we having such a hard time integrating it into the school system? So it was interesting in terms of being a teacher first, because when I went to business school, I had the lens of education. And I knew I wanted to stay in it. So every class, I was just like, wait, what? Like, we're not doing that. Either. <laughs> wait, what? We're not doing that either. So yeah, I think more than just running a business, it was definitely those moments that were, were very difficult for me, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. It honestly brings up a different perspective because I came at it, like I said, from the opposite way. Yeah. But our entire goal with building the school was how can this be student-centered? And how can we build a different model that's really going to set our kids up for success in the future? So instead of looking at this, well, that's the way it's always been done. Because yeah. as you hear in business, like those are the kiss of death words. Like we do it this way <laughs> because that's the way it's always been done. Like, you know, the business is failing when someone says that. But yet we yeah. do that in education. And so our goal was really like, how can we do this differently? And how can we set kids up for success? And how can we give them the skills that they need? And coming at it, you know, without the education background, just looking at it from here's what we need and how do we make it happen has been a different perspective. And I love what you said, because businesses have to be nimble, especially in this day and age with the digital age. Right. And so you have to be adaptable and flexible because if you don't, you're to your point, kiss of death, like you're going to fail. And so that flexibility and adaptability is just completely in so many ways missing. And I don't want to say for every school because I haven't stepped into every school, but I'm, I would say majority of schools is my assumption that that flexibility is never there. It's, well, we started this in the beginning of the year and this is just what we're going to run with. Yeah. And I think that's been highlighted through COVID with a lot of schools that really struggled with the flexibility and how to shift to focus, how to shift a mindset, how to shift education into something that was different that they hadn't done before. Yeah. And some schools did amazing with it. And a lot of schools really struggled. Oh, absolutely. And um, I worked in an underserved community. So 
when I would talk to the teachers afterwards, it was interesting to also just see the socioeconomic disparities of access to technology and internet and all of that. And so it was really interesting to kind of see that journey. And, and to be fair, there was a part of me that was kind of happy it wasn't in the classroom because I was like, oh my gosh, I can't even imagine what's going on at these schools right now trying to adapt. But I have a lot of friends who are still in the classroom. And so, right, having those conversations with them, it was very evident that this was hard. And it was evident that there was a lot of lack of support. And I think all the gaps that the infrastructure has had were just highlighted and were in everyone's faces. So have you seen schools or teachers or educators that you're working with, have you seen them start to make some shifts and changes towards a more flexible way of thinking and moving as a school? Or, you know, you talk a lot about consciousness and being connected as well, kind of a more conscious education going forward and really taking into consideration what we're doing and why we're doing it? Yeah, I think that's a great question. I think the answer would be yes. There's movement. I think that's what I would say. There is. Yay! I, I, I know, I know, right? <laughs> um, one thing, I mean, just very in your face tangibly was obviously online learning and the shift to that, right? So I think just being able to have teachers behind screens, teaching the students and having students at home, it might've been a little bit more personalized. Um, they maybe had more flexibility of like, you can go outside and do this or, you know, whatever that could look like. And then I've heard the other side where it was, well, the teachers were just in the front and the kids weren't as interactive because they didn't really know how to navigate that virtually. So mm -hmm. I kind of thought both. But then I also saw a mindset shift. You know, I have a friend, he started a program where he's saying, well, you know, maybe teachers are just hired through our company and they're accessible to parents and parents can choose and the kid can choose what teacher they want for a subject. And the teacher can just be hired to teach it from the comfort of their home, right? And so some of these mindset shifts have already happened. In terms of consciousness and connection, I think most parents, the biggest concern I heard was the socialization and their kids being isolated at home and being on technology all day and really concerned that they were going to lose out on some of the social connection that obviously a lot of parents want for their children in school. Mm -hmm. So I think that conversation finally started happening. And on top of that, I think a lot of parents were seeing their kids who are suffering. COVID is already hard for everyone as an adult. So as a kid, you're navigating so much. And so mental health was coming up more. And, you know, meditation was coming up more. Mindfulness was coming up more. So schools were starting to bring it up because I think in a lot of ways they had to. Now, I am a skeptic of what integration can mean long term. It's fine to do it for a month. It's fine to do it for two months, but what does it look like to do it when we all go back, right? What does it look like for the next two years, not just the year that this pandemic happened? And so I love that we're having movement. And I think my next question is, what are schools doing fundamentally to shift things in order to move forward in a different way? And if they are, how are they doing it? And for how long do they think they can do it? Because I do think, you know, and I, I understand and I empathize as an administrator, you're trying to safety regulations. There's just so many other things you're trying to abide by when your kids are coming back. So it's, it is understandable. However, to also just sit here and be like, well, the kids have learning loss, you know, don't get me started on that. <laughs> but, you know, I, I'm kind of going, well, one, what does learning loss mean? Two, you know, let's talk about emotional loss. You know, these kids have not been able to play or socialize with their friends for a year. Maybe we give them that back. Maybe that's where the learning really is. Maybe it's not by extending your school hours and having the kids sit in a classroom for two more hours because maybe they're not ready for that or that's not really what they need right now. And so 
yeah, I, I think it's happening. And I also have questions. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think you brought up a really good question is what are schools doing fundamentally to shift and to support students coming back and to support more flexible change and more conscious education. And that's a huge one. And like you said, what do these kids need most now? Like they need that socialization time back. They need to build those social skills back. They need to build connection with other humans again that maybe are outside their family circle, the people that they've seen for the past year and a half. It's definitely been hard to be away and be alone. But I think a lot of students and a lot of families are also finding that it's really hard to be back and among people as well. And there's there's a new social structure, right? It's not necessarily you meet someone and you shake their hand and say hello and smile and welcome them inside. There's the social hierarchy now. Do you want to shake their hand? Are they a handshaker? Are they a hugger? Are they not? Are we wearing masks? Are we not wearing masks? Are we staying outside? Are we staying inside? And everybody has different comfort levels. And when you mix all that together you know, in a school and all these students are still thinking all of those things. There's just so much going on right now. Absolutely. And, you know, I, I will say one thing that I want to also highlight is this idea of loss. I read a great post where it talked about, you know, kids have also gained a lot. They've gained independence. They, in many ways, have gained flexibility. They've maybe have gained more connection with their siblings because now they're in the same room. And so there's just so many gains as well. When I talk to parents and they, you know, are scared about the learning loss, you know, I tell them, I'm like, look, this is an arbitrary standard of what learning even is or when it should be. And I was like, this is a historical thing we've done by age. And that's not necessarily true. We know developmentally, if you and I went to the same conference and went to the same workshop, you may have different learnings than I do. And I may take longer to absorb it than you will. We all know that. Right. And so. For our kids too to go, well, these are the third grade standards and they're behind. I think the real question is, where can we have some nimbleness and even that in our mindset around, do they really need all of this by the end of this year? And can we kind of open up a little bit of just like love of learning again? Because if that's not there, then the rest doesn't really matter. Absolutely. Such a great point. Talking about loss and talking about, you know, where the standards even came from. Like you think about it forward into adult life and, you know, you went into education. And so what if you had missed your business standard in college? Like this was the year that you had to study business. And if you didn't, it was over. You can never learn it. Yeah. That's just not the way life works. We constantly learn. And so the things that our young learners and young kids have learned this past year are valuable things. They might not be listed on a matrix of education somewhere. A lot of them probably should be. <laughs> Good point. Yes. <laughs> but there's always time to learn more things. As humans, there's just always time to learn more things. And it's a really good point. Life is learning. You know, the idea that learning is associated with school in itself, it's a fundamental wrongness. Do you learn things in school? Absolutely. And you also learn a lot of outside of it. And it's a lifelong journey. And I think if we can show our kids that as well and not get so stuck on this idea that you only learn in school when, you know, let's be honest, a lot of it's busy work and it's not necessarily relevant or even matters to the child. Then, yeah, I think, you know, I always say even with consciousness, like it's a mindset shift. It takes a lot of work to be able to kind of dissociate yourself from these normalizations we've had around education. Absolutely. 
So let's let's shift the conversation a little bit and talk about your book. You recently published, it's called Raise Your Hand, A Call for Consciousness in Education. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your book and maybe one of your favorite stories from a chapter? Absolutely. So um, I recently published, I'm super excited. So the main premise of the book is this idea that our education system has been kind of built to be competitive and based on academic achievement and IQ and always to what's next. And as someone who taught in the classroom for many years, I really struggled with that. I felt there was such a dissonance between what my kids needed and what they actually were being taught. And so I am pushing for this idea of what does it mean to have more awareness of the child for who they are right in front of you? And their intuition and their innate gifts and their purpose and fulfillment and emotional well-being and all of these things that we tend to negate and if at all teach at all. And if we do teach it, it becomes very supplemental, not foundational to the child like experience in the classroom. And so I basically have a call where I interviewed over 70 thought leaders, educators from pretty much all over the world. And really started to understand their insights on this educational system and how we can kind of bring more awareness and a shift of what education even means and what it means to do good for kids. And so that's kind of the idea of the book. And oh, gosh, so many stories I put in the book. So that's really um, a great question. I do talk a lot about my students. I actually do talk a lot about my personal life. So one thing that I loved sharing in my book is I was a dancer. I've been a competitive Bollywood dancer my entire life. And I love dancing. Like I loved being on stage. It obviously connected me to my culture. And it was amazing. My mom actually really pushed me in it growing up. And I talk about the difference between how I felt on stage when I danced versus how I felt in school and what it felt like to be in this like rigid environment, be in front of the teacher and, you know, raise your hand when you're called on and be quiet and take notes. And like, you know, it was just never as exciting as how I felt when I danced. And I talk about how I used to tell my parents, like, I want a job that makes me feel like when I dance, you know, and they were like, they're there, like, you'll maybe one day. But then I became a teacher and I found it. And so, you know, I always think about how do we cultivate that innate joy that so many children have? And instead of removing them from it, because we perceive it as that will never be a career, or you can never have something in your life that you're passionate about that you also work in, that how do we kind of shift that mindset and actually cultivate those gifts so kids can find that path for them whenever that is, and that's going to change over time, but actually push them towards it versus being so scared and pushing them away from it. So that's a story that I share, and it's one that's definitely deep to my heart. (laughs) Yeah, thank you. My undergraduate is in dance. I was a dancer as well. <laughs> That's so funny and amazing. What type of dance? Primarily jazz. I did a lot of jazz and modern. I took a lot of ballet. Yeah. I'm not built as a ballet dancer. Definitely not a Balanchine ballet dancer, which was all the rage at the time. So, <laughs> but yeah, I had never put together the correlation of like teaching and that sense of freedom with kind of that feeling you get on stage, but it is similar. Yeah, you know, I never realized how much of I am of a performer. And, you know, I think as a teacher, you perform a lot. (laughs) You know, you're engaging your kids. It's like engaging an audience. And so there was just a lot there. But, you know, something I will also share is that teaching was never spoken to me as a career choice. Not once. It was never talked about. It wasn't even an option. Things definitely shifted for me. And um, I feel very blessed that I found it. But I know that 
a lot of people feel that they know what sparks them and what gives them joy, but it's not necessarily what others may validate as like a possibility in their life. Yeah. And that brings us to the consciousness of following your intuition. And when you find something, even if it wasn't within the lens of, you know, what was normalized for your your upbringing or your culture or your family or your ideas to still follow that. Yeah. And, you know, I will say, like, I knew by undergrad that I didn't want to pursue dance as a career. So I'm not necessarily saying you have to pursue that gift or that thing you like. Right. Maybe it's just a hobby and that's okay. I always say, like, pursue that feeling, right? So, like, I knew what it felt like to be alive. So why was it that I'm in these other spaces and I just didn't feel alive? I didn't feel joy. Mm -hmm. And really listening to that and being in business school and being with a lot of my peers, they would not feel spark and joy in their jobs. But because they were so validated for being in them, because the society saw them as a brand name and it's a good company and you get salary and benefits, they stopped listening to themselves. And a lot of argument I make in my book is we really disconnect children who become adults from ourselves, from who we are, from our knowing, from that inner understanding. We know that, but we're kind of talked out of it. And I'm no different. I was too. And it's taken me a long time to find it again. Yeah, we had that conversation amongst our educators earlier this week, wondering kind of at what age that happens. Because children are so connected to themselves and they're born this little bundle of connection. They feel things in their body that happens in their mind and they feel emotions fully. And at some point that kind of separates. And then like you're saying, at some point, again, we kind of stop listening to that piece. And I'm not sure when that happens, but there is a certain magic in being able to bring it back. I think that's a great point. Yeah, I don't have an answer for that. (laughs) You know, the reality is we live in a society and we live in a place where messages will be given to us. And so I don't think it's necessarily that a child is somehow exempt from it. Like, that's just not realistic. I think this is a tough job for parents about being open and having those conversations when it arises, right? Because we're going to get messages all the time. I think it's just how do we dive in and and have those conversations and show the child. And, you know, I, I talk a lot about messaging and language. I think being conscious of even our messaging. And one thing I will say is I was just was on a recent podcast and I was talking to three teachers who are actually in the classroom. And I was telling them that one thing that we really valued in my classroom was like community, culture, and like being there for each other, kindness, all of these things. And, you know, sixth and seventh grade middle schoolers, and they have their own hormonal, a lot of things going on. And one day a kid like dropped his school supplies and no one got up to help him pick him up. Right. It wasn't even like, hey, you all should, you know, do that. And I, I made it a teachable moment and I told the kids, I'm like, for me, it's not about, shaming this person because we all make mistakes. I think I was like, I was looking for someone who'd be willing to get up and help him. But then I realized how many times in the classroom I've said, stop worrying about them, worry about yourself, sit down and get started. Oh, wait, Komal, you are giving two different messages in your classroom. The one is worry about yourself, not others. And now you're expecting them to care. So I was like, in some ways, like hypocritical or, you know, distant from each other and as teachers or even parents or, and we're not perfect, but how do we bring awareness as to when that happens and how do we reflect back and go, oh, wait, like maybe what I think I'm doing is not actually what I'm doing. You know, I think Brene Brown mentions that when she went to the grocery store and she would always tell her kids, be honest. And then the cashier put 
an extra item in her bag. And when they went to the car, she realized it. she said, it's fine. Like, let's just put it in the van. And the kid goes, well, we have to be honest. Shouldn't we go back and give it? And so it's kind of those moments of, you know, what are we messaging to kids versus what we're trying to aspire them to be? And is there a connection there or not? Yeah. Now you have me thinking about how many like kind of cliche things that I say, you know, like worry about yourself, not other people. But I do expect you to worry about other people. How many of those things come up in my daily life? That's going to be my (laughs) thought for the week. (laughs) You know, how do we also be aware without judgment? right? And and guilt. I think it's more about awareness and then redirecting for the next time. And we're going to all slip up because we're all conditioned. It, it is one of those things. But you know, when I interviewed a lot of parents, when I started my business, I was asking them, what do you want for your child? And it's like, I just want them to be happy. I just want them to pursue what they want. All of these beautiful things. And then I go, okay, well, what messages are you getting from your school? And are they aligned? And similarly, they sat down and went, uh-oh. Like, yeah, you're right. They're not. Like, I'm, t- I'm screaming at my kid to do their homework. And that's not aligned with what I want them to become. And so that was like, oh, whew, moment. Yep. It's there. It's all there. And I believe me, as a teacher, I was going through it every day as well. <laughs> yep. I, we have that same conversation with incoming parents. Like, these are our values and this is what we believe in. And if this aligns with your family, great. And if it doesn't, then we're probably not the school for you. Because if we're sending your kids one message and they're getting a different one from you, that's just going to be confusing. Super fair. Makes sense. Yep. So thinking back to elementary school, since I run an elementary school, can you share a story that you remember from your elementary school years? So the first one is I remember my first grade teacher. Her name was Mrs. Phillips. And... I don't know. There was something about her that I found so fascinating. Every Thursday, we would move from the classroom to a portable and Mrs. Phillips would become someone else. She would put on a different act. She would not act as Mrs. Phillips and she would become this other like artist or a painter or whatever. And I remember that because I remember it really sparked my imagination. It was so exciting. You know, I was like, oh, this is my teacher, but she's also now becoming someone else and we can dream and we can play together and be creative together. So funny enough, I remembered that. And then I also remember in fourth grade, we had an assignment where we had to write our own book and we had to like write a story. We had to illustrate it. And then we eventually had to share it with the class. And I bring these stories up. And if I were to reflect back, I think the reason why they mean so much to me because they were really in tune with my creativity. They were in tune with my imagination and they were giving me a lot of autonomy to explore. And I've had to really work to find my creativity again. And I have actually realized everyone's a creative person in their own way. And I've had to find that I'm actually a really creative person. And yet I thought that science and math was my lineage and that's what I had to do. So I became rigid. But now as an entrepreneur, I mean, every day is creative, right? And I love it because I get to finally do the thing that actually excites me. Yeah, every day is definitely different as an entrepreneur. Yes. <laughs> and I'm glad, I'm glad that you had experiences. And that's, that's usually what people remember is those things that sparked imagination and those things that stepped away from the normal and allowed for creativity and self-expression And I think it's interesting that you bring up your one teacher that really liked to perform every Thursday. She'd become someone new. (laughs) So interesting. You're so right. Yeah. Gosh, I was like 
part of every club in high school and like was president and like always talked in front of people, was like always a leader, loved organizing, loved planning. And I'm like, come on, people who didn't show me all these skills that I had that could actually lead to something, right? Like what always excited me. So funny. But you built all of those skills by doing all of those things. Yeah. Yeah. So they're there now when you want to use them. Absolutely. It's fun to reminisce about those days of being super creative, you know? <laughs> Absolutely. All right, Komal, thank you so much. How can people get in touch with you? Yeah, great question. So I always tell people to actually connect with me on LinkedIn. I love to get to know people and I'm also pretty active on there. So you can kind of see what I'm up to. Um, so I am Consult Komal. So you can just type my name in LinkedIn, but I'm also on Instagram or Facebook if you want to find me through that. And yeah, I also have my book out. Like I said, it's on Amazon. So anyone who's looking for unlearning or being more conscious or anything like that, feel free to check it out. And yeah, that's it. Like I said, LinkedIn's usually the first place I direct people to. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful conversation. Yeah. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to the Rebel Educator Podcast. To learn more about us, visit rebeleducator.com, where you can learn about our professional development opportunities for educators and students and see our project library. If you're in the San Francisco Bay Area, check out our progressive, inclusive elementary school, Up Academy, at upacademysf.com. We'd like to say a special thank you to Atmosphere for use of their audio track, Miho. Thanks again for joining us, and we wish you well no matter where your educational journey may lead.